The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. You know, I'm obsessed with work. Not really the actual tasks we all do each day, but how we feel about ourselves when we're working, how other people we work with make us feel, and how our own identities are entangled in our careers. My guest today, Jessie Hempel, is equally obsessed. She's devoted her time to asking big questions about what work means, looking into new trends. And right now, she's writing a lot about the great resignation. You'll see the data. More people are planning on quitting their jobs or actually giving their notice than ever before. I think it's about a sense as we emerge from the pandemic that we've learned that life is really precious and we'd better make of it what we will. And so we're asking ourselves, how much work is worth it? What do we want from our lives and our work lives? Should we just give it all up and try something new? Now, look, these are valid questions for sure, and I am 100% in favor. But I have something else I'd love you to think about if you're considering walking away from your career. What do you want every day? What can your employer do to help you get it? Maybe you don't need a big YOLO moment, but rather a more understanding and human workplace, more clarity about when you're supposed to answer Slack and not. Time to keep working out midday without feeling anxious about it. A sense that you're heard. You know, Roxane Gay, who was a recent guest on the show and who writes in a work advice column for the New York Times, gets thousands of letters from people who are frustrated at work. And most of them are writing to complain about the culture of their office, how people treat each other, not about the actual work they do every day. If you're a leader and you're wondering, how can I stem the losses of the great resignation? Maybe it's time instead to create a great renorming. Set new norms for your office. Now is the time to redefine expectations among your team and in your culture. When is it okay to work remote? And when do you really need to be in the office? How late is too late to send an email on a Tuesday? What are expectations around working hours and responsiveness? My recent guest, Bob Posen, stressed that now is the time for organizations to set norms around what work and the workday looks like. Esther Perel, another recent guest, wants teams to get together and reflect, build on our shared experience and our different experiences to redefine what success looks like going forward. There's an incredible moment in the show today when my guest, Jessie Hempel, brings her producer on the line. It's a wonderful example of a workplace where people can ask for what they need and work around our very human requests. Now, my conversation with Jesse Hempel, who is the host of Hello Monday and senior editor at large for LinkedIn. Jesse is a longtime journalist who 
ask the big questions around what we all want from our careers. I want to I want to talk a little bit about being identified with your work. I've been listening to your show since the beginning and I wanted to get your personal opinion because the people you have on your show are extraordinary, but they share something in common, which is that they kind of are their work, right? You had Angela Ahrens on and, and I think she said like, there's no separation for me in my work. Like 24 seven, I am living it. I am breathing it. Like the passion in this woman's voice was just so incredible. And yet a lot of the advice that we get to maintain mental health and well-being and boundaries at work is to not be our work, to separate. And I'm not sure I agree with that for everyone. I just want to get your thoughts. Well, it's a particularly interesting question in light of my work personally. I think that as we move into the future, the idea of a resume, a flat sort of set of things you've done on a piece of paper is being actively replaced by the idea of creating a professional identity. And you do that on tools like LinkedIn. You do that with your substacks and newsletters. You do that with a lot of the tools, Maura, that you help people to use well in other aspects of your life. And that that is in part important far beyond professions that, like mine, are, are a little bit public. That if you're an architect, you need to be very good at that. If you're a computer programmer, you need to be very good at that. And that opens up this challenge, which is that if you're so busy Mm -hmm. um, creating for the world an image of who you are as a professional, then it leaves you tacitly having to design for yourself an image of who you are as as an individual and understand where the separation lies. And that's a lot of work to put on any individual. Um, and the danger of not doing that work is that you bleed so completely into your professional life that you suffer for it. You suffer for it how? In any number of ways, right? None of us want to be so fully our job that we aren't understood as as whole people. So there's there's that piece, right? Like you, when you're thinking about the marriage between your professional life and your individual identity. Um, like it's getting more and more complex. And I think about this as a podcast host because people connect and relate to the me that they hear on the show. They, they, they connect to me in a different way than they connected to my work when it was only in writing. They sometimes send me gifts. Um, I recently had a baby and I got a lot of correspondence from listeners who wanted to know how it's going. And that enthusiasm is amazing. And it's precious to me. And it makes me feel like the show is more important to their lives than anything I worked on in the past. And at the same time, it's a little creepy to me. Mm-hmm. So for me, that creates a tension. I want to call it micro-celebrity, right? Because I remember having Anna Ferris on the show, and she experiences that in like a macro way. I mean, truly, she experiences it that way. People pop out of her bushes to take pictures of her and her child yes. on the way to school. And it's super alienating for her. And it has really defined, I would say it... it since since Anna Ferris came of age as a celebrity at 18 or 19, it's it's defined her adulthood, that that aspect of her career. Wow. Um, for me, like I'm I'm 20 years in and I'm experiencing in this in this micro way 
Um, and it is super uncomfortable. I don't quite know what to do with it. I also don't think I'm alone with it. My guess is that this is sort of a, a rising condition for any anyone who is out creating and um, presenting themselves online and also just any old individual living in a town. I think that's... Does that make sense? No, I think that's right. In a way, you know, the people that are have I have on my show are really successful and they are fused with their work and they will say, I, I am fused with my work and I love it, but I also know it's my anxiety that drives me there. But then I listen to you and to your show and I, I don't know if they're the same people and they're just not talking necessarily about their anxiety, but they're also fused with their work. They wake up and they're excited to start the day and it's, it's what they can't wait to get their teeth into. But there isn't that sense of like worry about I'm fused with my work or my work is also making me crazy and stressing me out, you know? Oh, no, 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 Maura. You're so wrong. I'm so wrong? No, it's not that that doesn't exist. It's that that's not always what we choose to explore ah. together. But, you know, Hello Monday was designed to be a, a show about work and how work is changing. And the conversation that you're having, which is centrally a conversation around anxiety and how we manage it, but much more broadly than that, a conversation that surfaces and invites discussion about mental health, that's not a conversation that existed in the work world that I grew up in. I don't I don't know about Hell you, no. but I right? <laughs> so so we came up at a moment and at a time when you were expected to manage that stuff on your own, to to check that stuff. And our show explores what people have learned about their professional lives and their work lives. And it has been interesting. I'll tell you, when we started the show, I, I came from tech reporting, right? And I thought we were going to talk about things like artificial intelligence and how if you today worked in a jewelry store, maybe in the future you could run an online business. I thought we were going to talk about types of jobs that didn't exist before. Um, because to me, that's how work was changing. But then when I started actually like, going into people's lives and into their professional lives and into their careers with them, what I discovered was actually the things that people were hungry to talk about and the things that were really changing about their experience of work were much more internal. And that's where we hit the conversations around mental health, anxiety, depression, and the way that it has pushed people in their lives. And I would say that mm, at this point, it comes up in about 50% of the conversations I have with people, despite the fact that my show isn't called The Anxious Achiever. And when I invite people onto the show, I don't say, hey, this is what we're going to explore. And my assumption from that, Maura, is that if it's a question that I'm not even asking, and yet it creeps into every conversation, then imagine if I asked it. It's much more likely that managing your anxiety or more foundationally managing the challenges that arise as you become more and more self-aware and conscious of your mental health is simply a part of what work means today and, and how work itself is changing. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. What has your journey with anxiety been like over oh, your God. career? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I want to start by saying that I think that there is um, a distinction to be made that's a pretty important one. And that is that um, I would say that I'm an anxious person. I know that I'm an anxious person. Like My earliest thoughts as a young child involved like, okay, the firemen came to talk to the Brownie Girl Scout troop and mentioned there'd be a house fire in every American's life at some point. And so it must be tonight. And I'm worried about that. That was like me at six and a half, right? Like I'm an anxious person. But I also would say that I'm not a person who has um, clinical anxiety. And that's really important because I think it's a different experience. And I think that we get into trouble when we as anxious people um, expect that the people that we work with who are dealing with anxiety at a different volume or at a different level can navigate that anxiety in the same way that we can. So I'll tell you about my experience, and then I'll tell you about my team's experience. Ooh, good. For me, as an anxious person, I have gone through my life sort of drawing from like the array of tools that have existed for managing it, and mostly they have worked. So early in my career, I became very involved in meditation. That worked for me for a while. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm touch and go with Mora. I talk a big game with meditation. <laughs> but um, it sounds like you were onto and, it before it was, you know, mainstream in every tech CEO's life. Okay, here's, here's what I would say about that. When I finished college and I fell in love and the person that I fell in love with uh, moved to India to do yoga, mm -hmm. I moved to India and discovered yoga. I would like to tell you it's because I was a realized person, but it was actually because I was a 23-year-old, like, sort of lost in life following the person I'd just fallen in love with. And by the way, it didn't work out. No surprise. But I did discover yoga. <laughs> and that path also took me toward meditation. And from that point, I could see the value of meditation and mindfulness. And I have found small ways to bring it into my life. Um, and also, man, am I a proponent of therapy. Mm. I found myself a good therapist in my mid-20s and worked with that therapist for more than a decade. And that that is how I've navigated my anxiety, which on a, on a scale of one to 10, uh, you know, I'd say rides between a two and a five, sometimes crawling up to a six or a seven, but, but that's but it's about it. There. It sounds like it's there. Like you, you, you sort of know it's there. Yeah. I know it's there in the same way that I, I know I have, um, blonde hair. Right. And, and occasionally I, um, or I, you know, I, 
occasionally find that I need help beyond what I have the tools to do on my own to manage it. And then I'll go back to therapy. Or um, for me, I mean, it's the most simple hack in the world, exercise. Like for me, the way it manifests is this. I wake up at four in the morning. I go to sleep fine. I can navigate my life fine. Things seem to be going okay during the day, but I wake up at four in the morning. And sometimes I don't even feel anxious, but I have learned over time to know that I am anxious if I'm waking up at four in the morning. Um, And so when I start doing that, then I make myself start to exercise again. And, you know, if I go for a run or these days as I hit the middle of my mid-40s, if I go for a long walk, if I raise my heartbeat, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's amazing how that can take it down a notch, right? And if that is not working, then I turn to therapy or to coaching. And that helps me personally to sort of bring it down a little bit more. And are you able to take the time that you need, given given that you have a very demanding job, that you have two small children, like, are you at the point in your life where you can say, you know what, I'm waking up at four in the morning. It's important for me to get this hour into myself. Are you, are you good at that? Real talk here. Um, you're catching me at the craziest moment, Maura, because we've just had 15 months of working at home. Mm-hmm. I have a two and a half year old. I'm pretty sure that this is a period of one's life that should just be renamed sociopath because he is hard, self-absorbed and not all that interested in anything going on around him that he can't control. I mean, I I knew this intellectually, like I knew a lot of things intellectually, but wow, right? And and by the way, he's a shy and timid kid anyhow, and he's just been playing alone by himself for a year and change. Yeah. And then my wife had a baby in March and we've, I've held down a full-time job. My wife lost her job. So it becomes more important that I hold down my job. Wow. And then I sold a book, which I'm really excited about. Um, It was a memoir. It is a memoir. It's about my family. It will come out next year. HarperCollins is publishing it. And um, it's like the passion project I've always wanted to work on, except I thought that when it was time to do that passion project, I wouldn't have a full-time job, the need for that income, and two small children. Mm. And so the way that I have decided to navigate this, and by the way, it has mostly worked for me, Maura, is by extreme compartmentalization. Mm. And so I wake up at 5. I write from 5 until 7. I take over parenting duties from 7 until 9. I do my LinkedIn work from 9 to 5. And then by 8 o'clock, I'm basically toast. I fall asleep so embarrassingly early. I'm embarrassed to tell you the time. And then I do it again. And um, that's kind of a rigorous schedule. That's a lot. And I should say, like, I'm so busy. I mean, you can hear it. You you can you can hear it. And maybe busy is code for not taking the time to emotionally digest the collective horror that we've all just gone through, mm. right? When you're when you're spinning as fast as I've spun to keep myself together over the course of the year, you don't really have time to experience or process the the sort of collective ambiguous grief that we've all been through. And so I suspect that that's coming, that that's in in the, in the near future somewhere, that I'll maybe I'll turn the book in and just crash. Um, 
but but right now this this schedule is kind of working. I, I have to assume that you're able to compartmentalize for a good reason, you know, that that is a tool. And I think that that's good. If it gets you through this period, then that's great. I think so. I also think um, women are particularly good at it, and in particular, working mothers. And um, oh, see, I always thought you know, men were I'm, better at it. That's interesting. Tell me why you think women are, are good at it. What compartmentalizing aggressively allows me to do is channel when I'm going to multitask, mm-hmm. right? And to to go back and forth between being very focused on one piece of work, like when I'm writing in the morning, nothing else is happening. And were anything else to happen, the writing would collapse. And when I'm interviewing you in my studio, the same. The only place that I am is with you. In the interstitial time, I'm multitasking like, hell right like i'm you know (laughs) didn't you tell a story how you were like trying to set up a podcast about changing a diaper a few weeks ago (laughs) (laughs) i mean at the beginning of the week i got this call i bet you've gotten this call at some point this year that like a teacher at my son's school has been exposed to covid (laughs) and we're supposed to travel next week which means that i need to like create the right quarantine time for us before we spend our time with the family plus navigate getting him tested and I've got to get the intervals right and you know that's happening on the back end of the the management meeting that I'm sitting through on zoom and I, I'm pretty sure that this is basically the lived experience of a lot of knowledge workers mm-hmm. this year um, I full-on cried to the school nurse because she told me I had to come pick up the kids and take them out of school after an exposure and I I cried and I said, how are we supposed to get any work done? And the poor school nurse, like, I, 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 she just sat with me. She was so kind. <laughs> she was so <laughs> kind. You know, you had Esther Perel on your show. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about her work and how she tackles all of these feelings and thoughts and experiences that seem intractable. Mm-hmm. And when I think about you in the nurse's office crying over something that I really don't know how we fix, it feels like that. Um, And the lesson that I take from listening to her is nothing needs to get solved, right? On the front end, I think, oh, we got to solve this. But actually, we don't have to solve it per se. We have to lean in collectively and find voice for it and talk about it. That's what we need to do. And that actually will make things better. Do you think that the changing nature of work is going to be able to hold more of that collective. Esther Perel would say that we need to learn how to be collectives at work. <laughs> she, she, you know, and, and, and it's funny because, you know, I'm thinking of her family history and, you know, there's, there's some sort of, there's some Israeli kibbutzi stuff in there. But, but, but yep. I think she has a very, a good point when she says, like, we need to collectively learn to ask questions and hold each other, not physically. Um, are you seeing that? Do you think that people are getting better at that? Just listening to each other and understanding our humanness? So so work is being collectively just completely restructured right now. And let's get sorry, very tactical yeah. about it. Like where your office is is changing. Right. And how often you're going to go in is changing. And that change is not dictated from a top-down perspective by companies. In fact, in the short term, companies are going to think that it is. Um, I already see this, mm-hmm. and their employees are all going to leave. Like we're in the middle of a, a trend we call the Great Resignation, yeah. where you're seeing incredible turnover. Some of that turnover is happening because it would have happened anyways. People haven't 
moved around in a year and people move around, they do that. But a lot of folks are leaving because they've just had enough. In fact, we've, we've got an, uh, an episode of Hello Monday coming up on this. And I asked the listeners to send me just audiograms telling me their stories. And I got, goodness, dozens wow. of these audiograms. And there was one sentence that I, I just kept coming up and up and up, always from women. And it, it's, um, I was just done. <laughs> so I've been thinking, like, what does that mean? I was just done. Um, done like and Thelma and Louise done or like done like, like Thelma and no really yeah <laughs> like Thelma and Louise done like it's not about the employer very often the yeah, I like my job I like I like the company I work for um, sometimes it's about the actual work they're doing but but more often it's that people need like they need to step back and take a break and they need an employer who's willing to be flexible and meet them where they are mm-hmm. and when they can't get both right now they leave. And that is shifting the power balance here from like the top down dictate of what work will look like that we have come to expect from companies to the bottom up dictate that uh, that talent will define for us. Like the future of work is going to be defined by all these people who are done, who are leaving and who will find their way back into the workforce. I think that will be the big 2021 story about about work. You think they're going to come back? To traditional work? Are they going to just, I mean, historically, women have gone and they've started small businesses or they've started consulting. Well, I think that actually those highly ambitious women who have sort of created a model for what this can look like over the years in, in a sort of trickle out fashion have something to show us about where we're going. That actually the companies themselves will be remade by what the talent comes back and says that it's willing to accept. And yeah, I think actually a lot of the people who have, have left will come back to traditional work, except that there is no traditional work anymore, that that is being disrupted. And I lay that framework down because there's something even more important, Mora, which is that we have traditionally relied upon our people managers in this framework to be people who were very efficient at productivity and getting work done. And what that often meant was being bold in your assumptions and your assertions and your ideas and quick in your ability to realize goals. And I think that that is going to shift. And the values that will become important because they have to be the most important thing are going to be values that are just more feminine, actually. Like what? But they're going to be around... Like understanding and perceiving how people are feeling and what people need in order to thrive in the workplace. And the work is only going to get done if people are thriving. And now the puzzle is not something that your HR department can help you solve with its off-the-shelf series of benefits. Like you can do this, you can do that, you can do this, now Sally is happy. Now the puzzle is way more ambiguous. You have to fully understand all of the people who elect to spend their days with you and design custom experiences to help them do their best. And frankly, I think that's actually a model in which the the women that I know and men too, who embrace empathy and compassion and lead with a sense of like what it means to be human are going to thrive in. You've talked about times in your career when mentors and coaches have helped you. I wonder what your advice would be to someone who's listening and thinking, 
man, I want to be this person. I, I want to be able to, I'm good at reading people's feelings, but like, I, I, I don't, I feel trapped. I, f- I feel powerless and I'm so anxious about it. Who does that person seek out um, right now to learn? I love that question because to me, it has such a succinct, direct answer. Uh, like you can do this right now answer, which is, um, Like all the rules are changing. So just look out in front of you. Look for people who have roles that you might imagine yourself having in 10 years. Or if not roles, simply lives that you might imagine yourself wanting for yourself in 10 years. And have a coffee with them. Have a virtual coffee with them. This is a really fun period because people are coming back a little bit. And so they're hungry to connect. And so even more than at other times, if you reach out to somebody um, who you might not expect would reach back to you at another time. It's likely that they're they're vulnerable in this particular way right now that they're going to make some time for you. And the best way to begin to map out like what might be possible for you in a re-envisioned future is to learn what other people have done. Mm. And in the process, you will make them your advocates without even trying. Because man, Maura, does it feel good when somebody gets in touch with you and says, hey, you're amazing. Right. That just feels good. It's it's a wonderful ego boost. And so you're more likely to be helpful to them as they move through their their own career paths. So I do feel like there's like there's one piece related to like the subject that you study that I was really excited to talk to you about, Um, because Sarah is a person who has clinical anxiety and her anxiety is as present day to day for her as my two year old son is for me and requires about the same amount of work around. And that has been uh, like a wonderful part of what it has meant to work together. Um, and so we were talking about it because I knew I was going to talk to you. And uh, she was like, oh, by the way, you know, you should totally talk about this. I'm very comfortable with you talking about this. And I was like, well, if you're comfortable with it, yeah, I would love to talk about it. And that caused us to talk about it. And so yesterday, for example, they started just fine. But Sarah had a rough start to her day, and it kicked up everything for her. And as a result, instead of getting to work at 8 a.m., she, you know, which is when we had agreed or when she thought that she was going to start her day, um, it became clear that she wasn't going to get there at 9 and then actually probably wasn't going to get there at 10. And maybe in an earlier working world, like that in itself would have like ratcheted up her anxiety and my anxiety to the degree that we really wouldn't be able to navigate it well together. It would kind of throw off the whole day. Um, but I think it says a lot to how we work as a team that my answer to that, at least internally and then externally, is like, oh, anxiety day. And it, it has the same sort of, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing about our team that we trust each other so much and we are both so committed to the product that it doesn't matter how we get there, Right. And so in the same way that the day before I had had to leave a meeting in the middle of the meeting to go deal with the fact that my son's teacher had had this COVID scare, um, like she couldn't get there until 10. And when she got there, she knew that that was no problem at all for me. And she was able to say very transparently, it's an anxiety day. And I was able to say, is there anything that I can do about that? And we kind of centered on it. And then she wasn't quite herself for half the day. And that was fine because that was just the day we were having. 
And because it was fine, by the end of the day, she was completely herself. And here we are again today. And I just I kind of wanted to tell you that story because it got me thinking about the new the new sort of work norms around how we talk about anxiety and how that leads us to be better people, but also much more productive professionals. Well, I just wanted to I just wanted to ask you like Oh, God, it's so funny. I wish I could like three-way Sarah in, but um, <laughs> like, I'm on the mic if you want. <laughs> yeah, you actually can. You can welcome to bring Sarah in if you want. Really? If you want, I'm here. Well, I guess my question, Jesse, is is how did Sarah and hi Sarah? What when did you decide to tell Jesse about your clinical anxiety? What made you feel it was going to be okay enough? And um, I mean, how how often does it come up? That is such a good question. I think um, with as long with a lot of other people, I think my diagnoses have sort of shifted over time. And like we landed on anxiety a few years ago. And I don't know how early I let on. I think I was I like to think I was pretty transparent pretty early on because I'm also trying to own that like this is a facet of my life. Like um, if I needed to excuse myself to check my blood sugar that would be no problem. If I needed an accommodation to deal with something physical, like more physical, that would be a thing. I also like I had a lot of health issues last year and we went remote six weeks in. So I had to be really transparent about what was going on with me. And then I had to show that I could do the job. So I think it does cause me to like over rotate and try to like I share it and then I try to like overachieve, if that makes sense, to be like, it's not going to be a big deal. But um, I think I also just think um, enough with the shame and like the only way to change how we address it in the workplace is to get braver about talking about it and be like, this is a facet of my life, the way that like Jesse's parenthood is a facet of her life. And we both handle those things and we let each other know when it comes up and we like toodle along when it doesn't. Right. I think I knew it when you interviewed. I'm pretty sure that you talked about it when you interviewed and it was part of why I felt like you were the right candidate, because we, ha we had a ton of interest in the role that you have now. And the thing I needed to know most was that I could trust my producer. I don't know more if you feel the same way, but I needed to trust my producer to like, handle the small stuff and know that the small stuff was there's so much small stuff to producing. And it was very clear to me that uh, Sarah's anxiety was going to be her super secret weapon that Nothing would get forgotten. <laughs> and if she was uh, self-aware enough to be able to communicate with me about it, I knew she was actually the best employee for the job because of it. Thank you for saying that. I had totally forgotten I disclosed in the interview, but I'm really glad that I did. Um, and yeah, it. I have developed a spidey sense. It's like that hypervigilance that anxious people have, right? But sometimes it really does come in handy. It's like I can almost smell when there's an issue with an upload, right? Like I just somehow know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to zoom out and say, yes, we hypervigilantes are very good at the small stuff. But the true business superpower, Sarah, is that you can smell what's coming around the corner, you are thinking also about what's coming on the horizon editorially. And um, I think it makes us both very attentive, but also forward thinking. 
in our work, which is, I think, a killer combo. So I really am grateful for you two, <laughs> to you two for sharing that. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew. Thanks to the team at HBR. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and truths. For you, our listeners, who ask me to cover certain items and keep the feedback coming, please do send me feedback. You can email me. You can uh, leave a message on LinkedIn for me or tweet me at MoraAM. And if you love the show, tell your friends. Subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Mora Aaron's Mealing.